Tonight's episode is brought to you by DeathRayDesigns.com, as it normally is, because Austin and the guys over at Death Ray Designs are going to be a permanent sponsor here on the channel, and you can always check out all of their terrain, uh, everything from fantasy to sci-fi, and they're working on some other stuff, a little bit more modern, um, a little bit more things in between in order to get, for you to get in your Batman games, and you can find them at DeathRayDesigns.com. They used to be called Brush for Hire, but now they're going full bore as DeathRayDesigns.com. And another one of our usual sponsors is Gigabytes Cafe in Marietta, Georgia. It is one of the Atlanta area's biggest gaming stores. If you want to go there to play miniatures, play board games, hang out, meet the community. A uh, good example this weekend, just to show you how big it is, we have a massive, massive, massive X-Wing tournament. I want to say that it's going to have close to 60 people. There will almost be no room in the store for other gamers if they're not playing X-Wing. So if you're in the area and want to come check out Gigabytes Cafe... Uh, I can usually, you can usually find me there on every other Friday and Saturday mornings. Uh, find me, come say hi. We'll play some pickup games at Kings of War or Frostgrave or Batman or anything else in between. You can also find them online at gigabytes-cafe.com. And Bites is spelled like in food because they does have a full menu along with a full coffee bar. I also want to run something else by you folks tonight. Apparently, uh, we have some people in Tennessee that are challenging me to come up with a game club and a cool game club name for the Atlanta area gamers. If you can think of anything, feel free to contact us on our Facebook page, or you can email us. Uh, right now, you could use my email, which is tk.crackskullstudios at gmail.com. Uh, we have an official Skirmish Supremacy email web address. However, for some reason, it's not working, and it's a little faulty. So if you get a chance, come up with some great names for the club. And you can email me at tk.crackedskullstudios at gmail.com. Stay tuned for the episode. All right, folks, we are back for another episode of Skirmish Supremacy, and today my co-host Nick and I are joined by Joey McGuire. He is uh, also known as Joseph McGuire, if we want to be a little bit more proper, as most of you might know him from World's End Publishing, uh, the independent company, yes, I said independent company, that has uh, pushed out a very successful Kickstarter and a very cool game called This Is Not A Test. It is a post-apocalyptic skirmish game that is uh, very, very, very similar to Fallout and most of the other uh, Mad Max and uh, after the nuke tropes that we're so used to seeing in uh, skirmish games. Joey, how are you doing tonight, man? I am doing fantabulous, sir. Thank you. Fantabulous. You were the first guest <laughs> that ever used that word. Nick oh, logged that shit. We got to make sure we make a note. <laughs> logged and recorded. <laughs> Fort Mandos. Nice. So. Tell us a little bit about World's End Publishing and uh, how you got started. Um, so go, kind of go into the background of why you decided to like jump in and do this 100% independently and uh, kind of how you came about this is not a test. Okay. Um, so I always loved the post-apocalypse genre. You know, I was really into the, fall, the original Fallout, um, read a lot of books growing up. And then I would say... Right around, 
when Fallout 3 came out, and I, I, I will say that is the inspiration for me because it was set where I was living at the time in the D.C. area. And it, it's kind of a different situation when you're playing a game, you know. But then imagine someone takes a video game and kind of makes your world a little bit. Like, I used to ride the metro tunnels every day into work, and they got it so right. And, like, some of the areas, like, I recognize these things. And it just really kind of get my brain really going. And so I, I started running. I started, like, because I, I came from, like, a GW background, Warhammer, 40K, that kind of stuff. That was, like, my own thing. And then I started going to historical gaming conventions. I learned that there was more types of games out there, but I never really saw post-apocalyptic gaming. And then I slowly found some of the older post-apocalyptic games, and I was running them, and I was having a good time, but I kind of thought, I really want to do my own thing. So that kind of, like, the episode started, I started looking at, like, if I was going to do a post-apocalypse, how would I do it? And, you know, I just started looking at, and what the world would look like if I set it in my hometown. And then I was like, okay, well, what was my favorite gaming experience? Because let me recreate the, 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 the post-apocalypse with that format. It'll give me a great little thing to do. And my best time gaming was playing those like original 19, late 90s, early 2000 um, skirmish warband games like Necromunda, Mordheim. That kind of game where it's just, you know, it's like light RPG meets light miniature game. And kind of that kind of started it, you know. I, I started putting pen to paper. I we literally, I believe, I went on my honeymoon and I was writing in the cabin on the cruise ship about tribal warriors. And I, you know, <laughs> and over the years, I I would shove it into my friends and say, "Look at this," and they said, "This is terrible," and I changed it. And I did this repeatedly <laughs> for a couple of years, and I ended up with this is not a test. That's the short wow, of it. So, um, yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, I was gonna say. So, uh, you just kind of looked at every looked at your environment and said, "You know what? Screw it. I'm gonna do my own thing." And, a little uh, bit, yes. So, from what I'm gathering, is this was pretty much a solo project, 100 percent uh, bookend to bookend. Um, I always answer that question with a yes and no. Um, World's End Publishing is literally me. There are no other employees. Um, I, um, I, I don't come from a business background, which I think sometimes comes across in, when I'm talking to people. Like, this is a 100% passion project for me. And I'm not here, you know, making money is kind of like my secondary why I'm in this business. And, yeah, but yeah, so... So it is just me. I've had people confused. They think there's like multiple, like, wow, you're like the guy. I'm like, yeah, I'm the only the guy. But why I say yes and no is like, yes, I'm the guy, you know, who instead, you know, so as he approaches his midlife crisis, I'm the guy who decided that I'd rather have an awesome rule set than say a new car or something because of the initial investment to get our work and rules done. <laughs> but I'm and quite literally sometimes, but. Like really, the rules are they are the way they are because of, I, I've I've found that as you make yourself useful to other people and you get out there and you network and say you know this is what I'm really trying to do, and then people go oh I know someone who could help you so I've been helped by a lot of people too so I I, I just don't like to take I'm really hesitant to always take full credit for anything <laughs> even though it is my name on the cover if you open that cover up 
there's a lot of thank yous with play testing and art and layout and all kinds of stuff. But yeah, there's only I, I call myself um, president and head janitor of Worlds and Publishing. <laughs> it makes perfect awesome. sense. How long did it take you to kind of get it from where okay, this you know this system is where I like it. And I already, obviously you already had the setting in mind, so that wasn't that big of a deal, but how long did it take you to kind of flesh out the actual system to fit with how you wanted the game to play? Um, I, uh, there was about a three year development cycle. So, you know, I, I didn't, I think a lot of us in the hobby know how to write rules because we're always tinkering. Like, you know, I'm sure everyone who's ever played 40 K is like, you know, if I could just do this or do this, or I just change that little, little rule, like, I, I, I would imagine, like, like industry Star Wars, like Rick Priestley, were kind of born rules writers in my head, that's what I imagine, like, I imagine they were writing out rule sets before they were out of primary school, <laughs> but for some, you know, <laughs> but it was a little bit of trial and error for me, you know, I, I I you know, I played around with, I, 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 the, the first iteration of the rules were called Kitchen Sink. Because I looked at every rule book I could find, I read a lot of rule books, and I said, okay, what works, what doesn't? I knew from the beginning I didn't want I go, you go, where everyone moves one side, then everybody moves the other. I, I kind of, that was my starting point for how I was developing my rules. So I was looking at inter- uh, ways how models would interact, but you know, but it was, it was a little more dynamic than just say, okay, you move a model, then I'll move a model. We go back and forth, because that's still kind of I go, you go a little bit. Albeit it's much, it is a much better system than moving everything at one go. And over time, uh, my my I remember I can tell you my first playtest game, I ran it with my wife, and this was the only game she's ever played of. This is not a test, and my friend, and it went so poorly that they were like, "This is what you're doing." I'm like, "Yes." I mean, it was. Then that's how rules writing is. You know, you just you keep sucking at something until you're a little bit better, <laughs> as Jake the dog says. <laughs> So, yeah, it was about three years of back and forth, bringing friends over, running through it, them telling me why it sucks, me trying to make it a little better. And over time, you know, you know, I got some good ideas. I come up with my own ideas. We just kind of hammered it together. Nice. So how many different rules iterations did you go through? Like, if you were to add it up, because I know that uh, the system itself runs off of a D10 now. How many different weird wonky systems did you come up with to start? Oh, like total teardown? Oh yeah, let's let's go like let's go everything from like it was a good idea that I sort of kind of co- you know incorporated into the new edition to this was a dumpster fire. I probably oh, man, I'm trying to remember. There probably three. It was always it. So it initially started as a D6 game. And then, of course, with D6s, you, get, you, you either get a lack of spread for your possibilities, or you have to roll a bucket of dice. And right. I was like, so, so that was the first iteration where I was playing around with those mechanics. And at that point, you got a lot of models that there really was no difference in. So that was scrapped. And then I moved to D10. And then I think there might have been three or four different activation systems that I played with. 
And it was, and it's always like it's always minor changes. Generally, like I didn't like I didn't land. You know, you, you always like your first year is always hammering out the big problems, and then once you've got those figured out, you're like, okay, I'm using a D10. I know that if the models going to activate it's not going to automatically activate it needs some type of activation test you know then you start okay well am i going to go against the target number so i need to roll a d10 plus stat am i going to say that model already has a stat and i need to equal that stat or better so it was a lot of decisions like that really up in the front and then from there it was just evening things out figuring out you know how far guns should shoot that kind of stuff balancing melee combat versus ranged combat you know, these were all questions that you had to inter- answer individually, but you kind of needed to do them all at the same time. So, it was honestly about, I would say, a good two years before we had the rules to where we were happy with. And, and then that's where, like, once you get the rules done, and then the really the fun part of game design is when you start building things that live in that world, like actually designing your warband lists and what kind of fun things you can actually do. But before you like what I what I like to call you know hammering out how reality works in your game, that you know the nuts and bolts of game design that that that's an arduous process. So I yeah two and a half years, and you know I I'll say you know some of the things I'd even come up with like I, my my friend Dewey La Rochelle came up with the um, so there's a rule in the game where if you're shooting at models normally in most war games you hit and then you resolve that casualty immediately in TNT. You know, we he, we were playing a playtest game, and he was just getting murdered. Shoot a guy, dies. Shoot a guy, dies. And this is all because of the way the activation system worked. The guy just kept getting lucky with his activation rolls. He just wiped Dewey out, and Dewey's like, that sucks. I didn't like that. You should do it where you have to wait until all shots are resolved before you see who's dead or not. And I was like, dude, that's brilliant. And he bar I don't remember. He said it was in another game that he played as an older game. So I don't know exactly where that rule's from, but I loved it. And that's like almost one of the selling points of TNT now. <laughs> so the way that it works is you'll actually fire all of your guns. Yep. And after all hits are done, then you determine who's going yep. to be wounded and died. Yeah. So you have to decide, are you going to put all your shots in the one guy to drop him? Or are you going to spread them out? I mean, if you really think, if you've, you know, you watch any movie... And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ignore reality because we're not, you know, games don't do well simulating how guns actually work and all that. But if you watch the movie, you know, this is, everyone's just blank firing each other. You know, it's not like he's like, okay, that guy's dead. I know he's dead immediately, so I can just turn and shoot his buddy. You know, he's firing. Everyone's firing at once because all fire really simultaneously as people duck and shoot at each other. So that's what we were kind of looking, you know, trying to represent on the tabletop. And I think it's, it's worked really well, at least from a tactical side, so... But, yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to see how that plays out. So, since we're, yeah, we're kind of diving into that a little bit, why don't you go over um, a little bit about how the game plays, like the rule system, and kind of take us through an example activation. That way the listeners kind of get a grasp of what it is that you're accomplishing. Okay, so, um, TNT is a warband game, 8 to 10 models aside, so what you're putting... I would say between eight and fifth, um, as few as four, if you guys got power armor. And I would say, I think the match size is 20 size guys you can have on the table. So it's not, a, it's not a high model count and whatever you want. So whoever's turn it is, you know, whoever has initiative and parlance. So you're going to nominate a model 
that model is going to make an activation test. Now, that, that what that test is representing him, that model's view of the battlefield, how he's reacting. Um, and it's going to be against the, what, I, what I call the metal stat. If this were an RPG, that stat that would be dexterity, charisma, kind of all the generic non-combat stats. Okay. And it's one, it's, it is one simple stat. And that model is going to roll, roll a d10, add that stat to it. And if he gets a 10 or higher, he's passed his test. Now, most um, models have every. There's no model with a metal of lower than five, so your average of getting that is five or better for for even your most basic guys. And there's leadership abilities and stuff that will, will actually increase that. So, if he succeeds, that model gets two actions. He can do move and shoot, shoot and move, whatever he wants to do. As long as you keep passing that test with your models, you keep nominating models. So if he passes, he gets to move to the next model. At any time, you either run out of models or you fail that test. So if you fail the test, that model only gets one action and play passes to the next player. So what you have, so what you'll happen is really dynamic bouncing and forth of my model. Okay, botches test. It's not going to pass to the player. So you really don't know when all your guys are going together. Some turns they do all go together. Sometimes it's one back and forth as we you know making. Fa- a pass and fail initiative test, and it really kind of makes this nice kind of chaotic um, scene. And so, and then that's pretty much it. I mean, the activation test is almost the, the gist of the game. And then from there, it's it's um, it's pretty stand, pretty ball board game standard. You know, always gets starting to pretend to shoot. Um, hand hand is an opposed roll against each other, and that's kind of how a turn goes. Okay, cool. So. Walk us through, like, a turn of, let's say we just shot, and you were talking about the fact that the models don't just get shot and then die right away. Walk us through how that process operates. How do we go about erasing people from the battlefield? Okay, so let's say that your model passes activation test. He got two actions. He's got a shotgun, so he can only shoot once a turn. So with his two actions, he is going to what we call concentrate, so that will give him a plus two to hit. This is something you want to do, generally. And he is going to fire at a guy that's within... We'll just say there's a guy hiding in some ruins 12 inches away. Um, we're going to say that guy is in light cover, just because... So now, that, that model is a standard model. He's, he's a rank-and-file warband member. Nothing particularly special about him. So he's got a range stat of four. Um, shooting is, you know... When you're shooting at a model, it's never, you know, the target's not like I can make it easier or harder to hit me unless I'm getting in cover. I can't, like, dodge bullets, so this is not an opposed test. So it's going to okay. be that model stat plus a D10. If he gets a 10 or higher, he's fine. So normally he would need a 6. He would need to roll a 6 or better plus 4 to get 10. But because that enemy model is in light cover, it would go to, he needs, and so it's a minus 1 to his stat, so it would take it to a 3. But he's got got a plus two from concentrate for a total of plus one, so now he needs a five or better to hit. Let's say he rolls a six and he hits the model. So he's okay. got... We're going to now put a dice or some other token on the model that he hit. I use D6s because most um, weapons are strength seven and below, so you, those numbers are easy for keeping track. We're just going to mark that model somehow and, and then we're either going... And then we're not going to resolve that, that hit until um, play passes. So that's until I either run out of models or I fail an activation test and that model gets his one action and then we go. 
And then once that happens, it's a simple role of comparing the strength of, of the gun versus that model's defense. And you just roll off at that point, add, your, add um, any special um, armor, stuff like that into it. And then if um, the guy succeeds, he's dead. If the uh, defender succeeds, then he's fine. He then, um, even though he survived, he still has to take a graze test, which is another metal-based stat test to see whether or not he ho- if he dies for cover or not. And that's kind of how it works. Okay, so in a way, like stacking a lot of shots on one guy, especially if you really want to make sure he's dead, is a good thing. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a good way. Of, I mean, you know, you could kill him. I mean, I, I've... I've I've had four or five dice on the guy from combined fire, and he survived. Sometimes you kill him in the first shot, and you don't need those other three are kind of wasted. But you know, it's I find that it's it's a very tactical situation, and and people really seem to like it. I, I think when you're you know when you're getting models shot left and right, you're like, okay, I know you know this is a kind of unfair, but at least it's the guy had you know the guy's has to make that decision on which of my guys he's going to shoot. So it's kind of like it's like. I'm not being totally hosed all the time. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so yeah, I guess it, it makes sense in the fact that, like, you're trying to add as much of that real-world split-second yes. outcome, yeah, I guess is the best way to put it. So that, that explains range. How about melee? How does that end up working? Because I know you said it's an opposed role, so I'm assuming whoever wins is the one that's going to do the damage. However, yes. does that also have like a simultaneous phase? Um, well, well, I like to say that if you're shooting, you don't know if he's dead. If you stab him in the eye, you do. <laughs> you're up on top of him. You know if he's still breathing or not. So it's um, close combat is opposed rolls. It's a melee stat versus a melee stat plus D10s and anything else. And if you win, you roll to hit your opponent. Okay, so if the attacker wins, you then roll damage immediately. If the defender wins, um, you don't roll damage at all because you only, you only hit when you're swinging. Um, okay. But if the defender wins, he can elect... Um, if Well, honestly, if either side wins and they don't kill their opponent, they can elect to push the guy back out of combat. So you actually have like some tactical choices to make. And one of, one of, the, one of, the, one of the most common scenarios is... Um, so the way charging works is there's no charging ability, per se... What happens is, as long as you end your a move action within melee range, which is almost always base contact of an enemy model, you get a free swing on that guy. So, but you can only charge once a turn. So, like let's say the first turn, your first action is to charge in, but you lose, and the guy pushes you back out of combat. You you can move back into base base contact, but you don't get that free swing. So you can either choose to engage him. Or- not and this really makes some like tactical setups where you know trying to get one or more guys into close combat and <laughs> sometimes charging that you know being defensive you know you can play defensively with that like that yeah that makes a lot of sense so in a, in a way like having the ability to shrug somebody off um it also I, i'm assuming because most combats are base to base that if you shrug somebody off that means that this next turn people can shoot on that guy and try to kill him before oh, he gets back in the combat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but conversely, if, say, he kills the guy, like, say, the charger comes in, kills the guy in the first round, you don't have to declare, at, you, as long as, you know, AP is declared individually. 
except for one exception where you're firing a multi-shot weapon. Um, so if you kill a guy, you can either, then you're free, you have another AP to spend. So you can, if you can try to engage another model, um, you, won't, you won't be able to charge again, but you can maybe say get into base to base, go back into cover, or shoot a weapon, for instance, if you want. So, you know, it, it's kind of cool. You can kind of, when you're, when you're actually on the field and you've got a couple options. Nice. You know? So, yeah. We, we've kind of discussed, obviously, I don't want to go into too much detail on the system. You know, people need to go out and buy the damn book. That's all it comes down to. However, tell us a little bit more about, like, the size of the board that it's played on, um, the amount of terrain. Obviously, we all know it's a post-APOC setting, so, you know, having yes. rusted out stuff is always ideal. But uh, what does kind of the board setup look like? Okay, so, first of all, it's the post-apocalypse, so there's absolutely... Absolutely no wrong terrain you can put on your board. <laughs> Sci-fi, fantasy, all of that stuff works. You could, you know, your post could be an agrarian society, so if you've got fantasy terrain, throw it down. Um, I, kind, I kind of in that, that I grew up in GW, so I'm a little bit of a traditional, traditionalist on board size. I like 4x4 four four or 4x6, four and that's, so that's what I recommend. Mainly so it gives you a good, good balance between... You go too close, you kind of make it a little bit harder for guys with ranged combat. If you make it too far, you make it a little too harder. So I, I find, you know, four four feet by four feet is the recommended play size. You know, as long as you're adjusting deployment size, you can even go to three to three. Um, I've run demos on, I've run demos uh, three by three, but that's because I want action to get, you know, quickly. Um, terrain? It's not like Infinity where you need a ton, but um, open fields make it a challenge if you're trying to close distance. So I would say on a 4x4 four four table, I would like to see probably, you know, two or three major terrain pieces, you know, like of house size or bigger, and then a whole bunch of scatter terrain around. So I'd probably say maybe 10 pieces of terrain. You know, it's one of those things where I can't, it's like how long is a line, you know? It's like, you know when it's right, when you're like, okay, this feels a little bit like, like you know, I always have what I call the fallout factor. Does it remind me of fallout a little bit? Okay, I, I know I've got my table where I want it to be. But I'm a fan of the more terrain, the better, just because it complicates your plans. Yeah, very much so. And not only that, it's to me, it's always visually impressive. Because let's face it, nobody wants to fight in a parking lot. That's just a bad idea. Well, it's also, it's a skirmish game. So if you're playing TNT, I mean, if you're, if you're playing like um, any unit-based game, like say 40K or something like that, you know, you really don't want buildings that the roofs come off of. You know, you want big terrain pieces you can fit a unit into. You want a couple of those. But I really find the games really fun when you have like ruins your guys can crawl through and just all kinds of neat little things to fight over. You know, it's like, you know, I, you know when you, you see a normal tournament, you know, a war game tournament table, it's like four pieces of terrain, one of which is a huge blocking terrain piece, and guys really can't climb on it because it's huge. They go around it. I, I mean, I just love, like, just going over the terrain, you know, guys crawling over all kinds of stuff. That's, that's fun to me. So that's, what, that's the kind of stuff I encourage. And in the back of the only, book, I actually, huh? I was going to say, not only that, it adds story to it, like. There's always a story, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, more than just like we're going to march up like Napoleonics and just line shoot each other and call it a day. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I, like if in, in the back of the book or the PDF, depending on what you have, there I actually have a whole I have like a whole gallery of terrain that I've made. I've got four ta- four six by four tables of different post apocalypse terrain I've made um, for you know just because just for my collection. And you kind of see like that's what I kind of imagine the board should look like, but I don't want to tell anyone that what they're doing is right or wrong. But I'm always in a favor of the more terrain, the better. I get uncomfortable if I see six inches of clear ground. <laughs> and then you can like any direction, like, eh, I can put a rock there. I'm going to put this garbage can there. <laughs> always have room for scattered terrain. Absolutely. Nice. So we discussed the system. You know, we've got, we kind of got all the, the, the nuts and bolts out, out of the way. Let's talk a little bit about the fluff. How many total factions do you have in This Is Not a Test, and how, how are each one represented? Okay. Right now, official factions are seven. They are, so it's kind of, they're all post-apocalyptic tropes. You have your raiders, which are, you know, going out and burning things down. You know, we don't sow kind of types. Just, you know, giving everyone a bad day. Um, you have your peacekeepers, which are synonymous with, um, in my mind, they look like Maryland State police troops with their campaign hats and they're kind of like your wasteland rangers in the faction um in the fluff they're they're mer- they're mercenary peace they're basically mercenary law enforcement so they'll keep your roads clear if you keep them paid then again some of them are a little better than raiders anyway um then you have your tribals which are your traditional we don't like technology we believe that's what caused the post apocalypse if we do use any technology it's you know we have to cleanse ourselves afterwards very simple. Um, and then you have your caravanners. These are your trader guys who are, you know, traipsing along, bringing goods to outlying settlements. Um, and then mutants, which the book has over 30 mutations in it. Um, they're probably the most diverse warband because there's a crap ton of mutations and there's different lots of permutations to do. Let's see, that's six, that's five. Who am I missing? Raiders, tribals. There are the preservers, which are, they're not, um, some people call them the Brotherhood of Steel. I think of them more, there's a, there's a very faint, there's a very awesome book called the, uh, Order of St. Leibowitz, I believe it's what it's called. And it's about this, like, almost like this monk faction that works to protect the technology of the old days. And it, I kind of merged them with the, the idea of the Brotherhood of Steel. So you've got guys in power armor. But then you have your squishy guys that accompany them. And these kind of two guys, even though it's the same faction, they're still kind of going out where, like, the reclaimers, what is what I call them, want to go out and take things. And they're like, well, we, we need to do that, but we need to protect people too. And I think that's the six. And then there was also a new faction um, I added with a supplement called the Mutant Cannibals. Mutant Cannibals. And they're kind of like your hills have eyes, um, devil's rejects. Just kind of nasty mutants, and they're not like they don't have as many mutations, but they've got the abilities to like eat, feast on bodies, and wear the skins of their enemies, and that kind of stuff. So they just went straight. You went straight for the like the hillbilly hills horror trope on those. Oh yeah, totally, totally. We're actually, um, <laughs> I'm actually making. We're having it's um, miniature wise. The peacekeepers are the first war band we finished. Um, I, we have about ten different models for them. The mutant cannibal, the mutant cannibals are the next one. 
And if you, I don't know if you've seen the cover of the the supplement. It's just got like they're just gross looking. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I That's, thought it was pretty awesome. Yeah, just like the guys with the hooks. And we're at, I'm actually having this sculpted up right now by uh, Sean Bola. Bolu? Bola? I don't know how to pronounce his last name. A really nice guy. <laughs> but yeah, they're looking really cool. Not so nice now nice. that you can't pronounce his name. <laughs> it's B-U-L-L-O-U-G-H. Bolo? I don't you know. You know what? We're just going to take your word for it. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, he does look cool. How's that? That works. So, <laughs> you've got the Peacekeepers done. You've got a good chunk of the mutants done from what I've seen. Now, you've also got some other, like, uh, I guess you want to call them NPC or uh, neutral parties that enter the field, like uh, rad uh, cockroaches and things like that. How did you come about sculpting some of those? Like, what, what was... What was the idea behind it, having these? Are these something you can hire in the factions, or um, is it stuff that just kind of appears? A little bit of A, a little bit of B. So, for instance, the mutant cannibals have a lot of... They, they tend to eat things and leave things laying around, so they attract things. They can actually hire some of them. Um, a lot of factions can actually take... A few of the factions can take animals. Not everyone can do it, but some can. But generally, what, they're what I call wasteland critters, and they're... You know, before you start a game, you roll on the way, on the hazards of the waste table to see what happens. You could have everything from a you know a fallout storm to royals of poisonous gas coming through to creatures showing up. So, and there's a whole table for that. The, the book itself has thirty different creatures in it, and I only make about five. I, I think I do some of the more um, iconic ones, and the rest of them are kind of like generic, you know, like rad roaches and. You know, mutant rats. Um, and they can all kind of show up in the game. There's a good chance, you know, they're just, they're NPCs. They're, there's a very, um, very simple AI system for running them. And so it, it's actually, some, can be part of your warband strategy if they're on the table. We go back and forth who controls them. And as long as you follow the rules of they have to charge the closest, you know, enemy model so sometimes they shut, you know, if you control them that turn, you can shut them towards your opponent, or, or you can, he'll shunt them towards you. Um, one of the funniest things you can do with them is, so they're in the back of the book, there's rules for fighting between uneven warbands. Um, depending on how familiar you are with uh, Mordheim and Necromunda worked, a lot of times you would have players with their warbands would just play so many games, like say some of, there's a campaign with three people. Two of those players would be a lot more available than the third guy. They would just play so many games, their warbands would get so powerful that the third guy didn't really have a lot of options. And that was something I wanted to avoid as much as possible. And my kind of imperfect solution to that was coming up with different abilities you could buy. So, if, say, if your guys, your opponent's warband's 200 points more than yours, or what I call BS, which is barter script, is our name for points you can buy Animal Nest for 100 points. You, then you can take a nest full of critters and you can put that pretty much anywhere on the board that's without within, that is at least six inches away from your opponent. But, you, you know, just measure six inches and drop it right next to his guys. <laughs> and that keeps them occupied for a turn. So there's, you know, I, I like to give people lots of reasons to use the miniatures they have sitting around. So and that's 
how kind of the that's kind of how the critters work. And um, miniatures we have are you know tropes like the rad roach. Um, I've got mutant rats because I really love the old Necromunda rats, but you can't buy them anymore. And I was like, I need two headed rats or rats with you know spikes on their back and stuff. So I had some of those sculpted up. Um, we do a thing called a psychic husk, which is like a kind of your psyker kind of guy that just his brain blew up because he was using too many psychic powers and he just kind of floats around the wasteland randomly shooting off psychic abilities and kind of things like that. And I've got plans, you know, I've got more in the works. And actually, you just mentioned something that, uh, you know, really kind of attracted me to the game when I uh, first saw it. And that's, you can have, you, you know, you have a couple factions and you have some critters and all that, but it's very miniature agnostic. It's bring whatever you have laying around that you think will look good. Absolutely. I, my phrase for it is miniatures neutral, but yeah, miniatures agnostic. Um, I, you know, I am trying to, I, I'm not a miniatures company, you know, I'm a, I'm a game rules company. I do miniatures because I I think it's cool, but like most, like, I mean, I'll be honest, most of my money is from PDF sales, you know, people really, you know, so I, I really encourage people to go out and like, I, you know, I tell people if you, you've probably got enough miniatures right now to play this game. You know, what, what really, what does a Raider War Band look like? You know, we all have the idea of, like, the Mad Max type guys or the Raiders from Fallout. But, you know, like, a perfect example would be you can just go out and buy that GW cultist set, right? You get, like, five guys with hand-to-hand weapons, five guys with um, two-handed rifles and stuff, shotguns. You get a leader with a shotgun and power sword. And a guy with a flamer and a heavy gun. Raider Warband right there. 20 bucks off eBay. Plastic models. Good all day long. Um, I've seen people build warbands out of everything from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle models to um, War Machine. You know, I've had some of the craziest stuff people have shown up with. And it's, I'm like, it's awesome. I absolutely love it. <laughs> because at the end of the day, I'm not here to tell you how to have fun. I'm trying to say this is what you can have fun with. And it's it's actually just really cool to see some of the some of the warband ideas people just come up with, because I mean every warband has characters. So, you know the raiders have their warlord, which is their big guy, and they have like the brute, which is an even bigger guy. You know, so whatever big guy you have sitting around, and because I don't have you know the warbands don't have weapon lists for individually, it's just one set of guns for everybody, and points don't change. So if you want your leader to have a sniper rifle, you can. If you want your 10-foot-tall mutant, mutant guy to have a sniper rifle for whatever reason he may not be good with him, you can buy it for him. <laughs> of course, the caveat is, you know, I can get expensive very quickly, but there's nothing rules, there's nothing, there's very little in the way of the game that tells you that you shouldn't be able to do something. So it's very... It's very much a system where it's like this is what you can do. This is this is not what you can't do. Because I've seen systems worded quite a few different ways in between. Like yeah, war, like I know like War Machine. We we mentioned you mentioned that just a couple of moments ago. But like that system is very clear and precise on everything that it says. That this is what this specific ability can yes. and cannot yes. do. And it's worded very much to say. This is canon. This is how it operates. Don't deviate. Absolutely. I mean, War Machine especially is really a tournament system. It has to be precise. 
Because you have to have two people that don't know each other roll up and be able to agree on how everything works, and they do, and it works well for that. So where, you know, TNT, it's a little more, I don't know, social, gentlemanly, I guess. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, it's not, it's more of, you know, a bunch of fellas getting, fellas and ladies getting together, drink, I like to think drinking beer and rolling some dice, you know, it's that kind of more like, yeah, you know, it's more of a social kind of game. Yeah, definitely. Now, do you have plans for like coming up with an organized play system or like a tournament system? Something that, uh, you know, once you're, I, cause you just had a very successful Kickstarter with your book, like yes. something that once the stores kind of start getting into it, something that they can use to help promote it. Um, at the moment, I don't have like an organized play thing. I'm still working out the logistics that, you know, I would really much encourage, like right now a store can't buy this game because I'm the only one selling it and I just don't have the means yet of being able to get it to a distributor. But I would, I would not hesitate to tell any store that was interested in it. If you let people play this game at your store, they will buy miniatures at your store for this game. It encourages the sale of miniatures for other systems. It's just one more outlet for you to to make a sale to somebody, and it's not really taking away a sale of another game. It's just adding, you know, an added value to miniatures they're already going to buy at your store. Um, for like an organized play thing, we actually did have. Um, so the game's done well in Australia and New Zealand. It took me by surprise a little bit, and there's a gentleman by the name of Jaden Barr who I think he's done it twice now, where he's run almost like a tournament. You know, they, so they, they, they came up with a set of rules for figuring out... So every so the basic warband is 400, what would it's called, 400 points. And then he figured out a way of saying, okay, well, then you can spend this... Um, advances have point costs, so you can kind of figure out, let's say you get 100 points of advances, so you can give your guys experience. And then... T, you know, TNT scenarios are more narrative-driven, so they're a little more involved than the classic going up and shooting each other. That's still kind of there, but he, he simplified the scenarios to where you can finish a game much quicker. You know, he just like, let's get to the real meat of the potato, let's get to the meat and skip the potatoes. And, I mean, I think they played, like, six games, four to six games in four hours over the course of a Saturday, and they said it went well. So, like, I'm looking at making something like that, where people can just go, okay, like six of us are going to get together. Everyone's going to do a, like almost like a campaign day, but it's a, kind of like it's not really a tournament, but it's kind of like a tournament a little bit. And we'll just see kind of who's the king of the hill, I suppose, and who gets the most victory points from all his games combined. So that's something I'm looking at. And at some point, I will very look seriously at an official organized play. I just I'm not really good at that. But I do know people who are, so I hope in the future that I can talk to them <laughs> when I'm ready. When, when I'm not spending every moment of my life dealing with a baby and or a Kickstarter and or the next book. <laughs> yeah, Kickstarter is a lot like a baby. Oh, my God, dude. It, every day I am doing something. Just I, I, yeah. I'm so I'm, I'm using backer kit. So I've been learning their process and. It's a lot of work. It's, there's a lot of work behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of Kickstarters, let's talk a little bit about how yours sure. went and how it was so unexpected in, in the success that it had. 
So you you initially wanted your pledge to be what was it? I think it was like two thousand bucks. Our initial goal was two thousand. I will tell you that. The, so the night, a couple of days before, um, Dave Taylor is my layout guy. If you don't know, um, if you don't know him, he's been in the hobby for a while. If you're familiar with anything from GW, and the early, if you saw any any cool, cool armies in White Dwarf from the early 2000s, chances are it was one of his armies. And, yeah, I'm you know, familiar with Dave. He, he did all of my graphic design, and I was like, okay, we'll come up with stretch goals. He's like, I wrote up stretch goals to $9,500, but I'm like, just do it to five. We're not even going to see that. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and, of course, you know, I within a couple hours was eating my words. <laughs> but, yeah. I was not expecting that to happen. I mean, I knew I work really hard at social media and community. You know, if I'm not, you know, I'm online. People can talk to me. They can post rules questions. I sometimes, you know, I like to, I like to stay grounded in that sense where I'm not a, I'm not ivory tower kind of game designer. You know, if you tell me something sucks, I'll listen. You know, I may not right. do anything with that, but, you know, I will listen <laughs> and take what you're saying and say, okay, it's fair, it's a fair point. And I work really hard at listening to people. And, you know, so that, you know, people respect that. They they like being listened to. And, you know, I've been able to kind of build a fan. I don't want, like, a fan base. Does that make sense? Like, there's people who are excited. And I just didn't realize there was, there were people on Kickstarter night complaining to me that they had to stay up late because they want to be the first ones because it was like one o'clock in the morning in the UK. And they're like, Joey, I'm tired. Let's get this thing going. <laughs> because, and, and you know, that was the initial crazy groundswell of the first couple of days. And then, it, you know, from like once the 10th day hit to the 20th day, like all Kickstarters, it was a little bit of a, a little bit of a trudge. <laughs> right. But we did good, you know? So, uh, yeah, so what did you end up with as a total? $43,000. Um, $43,000, roughly $43,000, and 592 backers. So some of us were really trying to make you, uh, make you actually make good on your uh, promise of a campaign book at 100000 They, I, I was worried there for a minute the first night, and I'm like... <laughs> I, I, I have an idea for a cane public, but it ain't ready. <laughs> <laughs> so you were out there calling everybody's bluff, and then you saw it all happen, and you just kind of went, oh, God damn it. I, well, you know, I, this is not my full-time job. This is my day job. I mean, this is what I do. This is what I really like to do, but this is still. <laughs> so this is what I do when the, when the sun goes down and the, and the baby's asleep, and I no longer you know, have to do anything. I'm like, oh, my goodness. $43,607. That's what we did. So yeah, I'm like I, you know, and and I'm handing the U.S. fulfillment. I have two wonderful partners. One's doing the U.K. and Europe, and the other one's in in, in Australia. But I have to do 300 and some package. <laughs> It'll be done too, hell or high water. I will deliver. It, you know, I will, if not early. But yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's going to be a lot of work. Awesome. I'm backer number six, by the way. Uh, I, I was one of those people that was just sitting there going, okay, he said it was going to release at this time, it's it's that time, 
And as soon as it popped up in my feed, I'm like, click back. <laughs> and and I, yeah, I, I thought I was pretty fast. I'm like, okay, this pledge level, uh, Warlord or whatever. And, um, and yeah, yeah I was, are. I was, li- I was like, oh, how am I number six already? <laughs> it's, it's been like a minute. Jerks. That's because you're too damn slow on your mouse. That's the problem there, Nick. Apparently. But you know, the funny thing is I don't have a number one. I have a number two. It, it starts at two. Huh. I wonder if someone... I'm looking at my backer list. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah, but I recognize all the... It's like, oh, I'm looking at all the names, and they're like, yeah, I know all these people from one line. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. That's actually... That's that's a really good thing, too, because, you know, I, I've been following your stuff for quite some time. Obviously, we're on the Facebook groups. Um, yeah. You're very, you're very personable with people. And, you know, I could tell that, like, the moment that the campaign was going to go live, I'm like, you know what? I, I was saying I was saying it to a couple of my friends. I was like, his Kickstarter is going to do far more than he thought. Now I was thinking, you know, if you were going to say two thousand bucks, it was going to maybe do ten or fifteen, and you know, call it good because I didn't realize what the player base was going to look like. Um, yeah. And then I saw it just spike from there, like almost in a week. I think you blew those numbers right out of the water. Yep. Well, we're not done no. yet, though. Well, what? In less than an hour, you blew away your two thousand. Oh, that was five minutes. Yeah, that that was that was great. Uh, yeah, we we funded in five minutes. Yeah, yeah I mean, first world you, problems. I mean, you you. I mean, uh, I think as far as Kickstarter goes, I mean, there there's a lot of bigger ones, you know. But I think from a perspective of it, it's just me. It's just you know with you know. I mean, obviously, people were helping with the book design and rules and all that, but you know, it's me putting foot to pavement and really get. You know, I, I like I honestly spend about an hour a day on just social media, just talking to people on the forums or here, and I think that really resonates with people. And I, you know, I, I really try really hard to be like, you know, I, I am invested in, and this is not a test. This is not a test. Is not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, a lot of Sometimes the way rules, the, the way the way and this industry and any industry is, if something doesn't make money, you can't a business can't afford to support it. So it kind of you know I don't want to use the word dead system because people will you know nothing stops a game from being played ever, other than finding players. But you know we honestly know that if a game isn't supported, it's it kind of dies on the vine a little bit. But I'm in here for the long haul, you know. If we, you know, and games are always cyclical, you know, things become popular, then things kind of slide. And, um, you know, my plan is I'll be at the helm of this ship, keep putting out stuff, keep making the game, you know, giving people new stuff to do, more scenarios, more books, as long as I can. I I really do have a solid commitment to making this the best damn game it can be. Nice. So where do you see the game going from here? Like, obviously, we got to get past the Kickstarter. You got to get it fulfilled. But uh, is this something that you want to see? This is not a test books up in game stores, or is it something to where you don't think you're quite ready to handle that yet? I'm not ready to handle that yet, but I would. I love to see it absolutely. 
Um, to really expand the game, you have to be in game stores. You know, you you can be, you know you can always you can always make money. You know, running a game, and you always have players. But you know, most play you don't get it. You don't get in the face of normal players until they they see it. Now, you know, the book is beautiful. So if I can get it, once I get it, be able to get it into game stores, someone's like perusing it and goes, oh, that's neat. You know, then they're like, oh, yeah, I want to play this. But see, the challenge of that is once people see a book and a game, they go, I want to play that. Well, where can I buy the miniatures at? You can tell them until you're blue in the face that you already own the miniatures you need to play. You can buy ours. That would be cool, but you don't need to. But generally, most most a lot of your gamers are like, no, 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 I want to buy it. If you, if you don't have miniatures to sell, I don't say they're not interested, but you're not going to be made a priority. So I, I need to get a, a couple more warbands out there, you know, a little bit more significant stock. I, I, you know, I'm hoping to have two warbands, you know, two warbands done in the next six months. So, you know, Peacekeepers, Cannibal Mutants, and then I have, you know, a couple more in the hopper. There's been some, I'll just use the phrase challenges to getting those done <laughs> beyond my control. But, you know, we're working on it. So, but once I get enough miniatures to support a gaming store game, that's where I'm going to make that push to say, okay, let me get into distribution. But I, I'm not there yet. I'm still at the LME control it locally, sell rules. You know, and, and really that was the point of the Kickstarter was, I, you know, people really wanted that hardback book. I was okay with the PDF, but they were like, you know, no, no, we want, we want the fish. We want this to be a real game <laughs> for like, you know, for lack of better phrasing. So I was like, okay, let's do this then. But yeah, I mean, I would love if I would absolutely love to have random guy walk into gaming store in state X and see TNT on the shelves and be able to play it with his buddies. That would be absolutely awesome and a dream come true for me. Awesome. That's, you know, and I know that's it's a, such a hard thing to do, especially in the miniatures realm, because of the fact that, uh, you know, most people that go, walk into game stores or most people that know things about games in general, they think of, you know, board gaming and like they, they expect it to come in like a nice clean box where it's like they buy the box, they open it up and within 10, 15 minutes they're playing the game. And it's not like that with war games. And they're always passion projects which is something that always comes across very much in anything that you've been putting out with TNT. So, um, you know, I, I have a feeling that if you get it into stores, people are going to, people are going to get that feeling the moment they pick up your rule book and read it. Because I've read through your uh, rule book numerous times and I could tell like just reading it every time I was like, this is a man who poured his heart and soul into this. He didn't just do it to say, Hey, I'll make some side money. <laughs> Nobody makes real money in the miniatures world. We're all passionate. <laughs> <laughs> I was you're going to let that cat out of the bag. I was going to save that one for a later episode. But, folks, uh, you heard it first. Nobody makes real money in the miniatures world. Unless even, you're GW. Or, well, even, well, you know, we consider GW a large company. But as far as businesses go, they're tiny. Like, if oh, you yeah, look they're at, peanuts. The Fortune 500 level stuff, I mean, GW is a drop in the bucket. You know, like, has, you know, like, Hasbro's an order of scale larger. It's just amazing how small we really are, like, yeah. <laughs> and that that's like the indie guys, you know, are putting out stuff for, like, so we're like, yeah, we, we do okay, you know. 
my Kickstarter, like some places are like, if they're not making as much as I do a month in Kickstarter that I'm, ha- they, they've got to make 45 grand a month or they close the doors, you know, like, like yikes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a scary proposition. Let me tell you, I've, I've been there. We will leave it at that, but I've been there. Yep. 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 So awesome, man. So we got a couple of minutes left before we all got to get the hell out of here. I know I do. I got a long, long day ahead of me. So uh, is there anything else that you want to talk about a little bit more? You want to plug some uh, World's End Publishing and this is not a test. Give people a little bit of an idea of what you got coming out in the future. You know, give uh, some people sure. some excitement. Um, so the next book. So simultaneously as the Kickstarter will be fulfilled, I'm working on the next book, which is all of the. So when I did the original book, it was a heck of a lot bigger. But then we parsed it down so that it would be shorter, more easier of a sell. But I had a bunch of stuff I wanted to do. So the next book is called The Wasteland Compendium. And it's two new factions. We introduce um, settlers, which are the guys that are hiding behind the walls. Um, There's also the renegade reclaimers who are preservers but have fully broken away. They are your Brotherhood of Steel. Um, They're the only faction that if you wanted to, everyone... Well, everyone has to be in armor, but they all can take power armor. So it's your Seven Samurai warband of four models holding it out against the hordes. Um, Also in that book will be... um, We're adding a lot more skills and mutations. The mutations... Right now we're um, small tables. You roll a d6 on, and that's what you give your spread. These go to tables, go to d10. It introduces a lot more um, skills, mutations. Um, there will also so I'm also introducing the idea of warband variants, where it's you're basically you can choose to play the warband from the main book, or you can play like um, so. The first one in the book will be tribal variants, so you can play stock tribals. Or you can play what I kind of think of like these orthodox tribals, where they worship beast totems. So that kind of gives them what their psychic, what their sh- so their shamans can get beast abilities. They have access to specific wasteland creatures like wolves or maybe a giant snapping turtle. Um, and there's news every every war band gets a new specialist. So there's a lot of fun things in there to do. And then we have. So, let's see. The Mutant Cannibals are being worked on. That'll be our next war band of eight models. It's being sculpted by Sean Balo and um, we have, um, Pit Patrick Keith of Bombshell Minis that are very awesome. One of the characters is Petunia, who's the kind of classic um, unblemished mutant beauty who tricks the normal wastelanders to come hang out with the, with, with the Mutant Cannibals and tricks them into being eaten. You know, he did a really cool version of her and she'll be coming out soon. And that's that's immediately on the horizon. And then and the question I always get is robots. I want robots. Let's, I want to play a robot war band. That is That will be probably the next book after that, kind of the book of technology, robot war band. So the book has relics in it, like plasma casters. That's in the original book. I'll be doubling the amount of relics in that book. And then, of course, we talk about the campaign book, where that really, I think of that any release that I think will make the game is the campaign book will 
Um, the original book does campaigns very well. It was one of the one of the main things I wanted. To, I wanted that book to have a playable campaign in it, and it's really good for running two to four people through about six games. The campaign book will introduce you know territory, so you'll get a hideout, and you've got to maintain that territory. You've got to make money. You've got to punish people that aggravate you. You've got to go out into the wastelands. You really got to. It's going to be a lot of hustling, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It's really going to make like I just imagine like a campaign with like eight people. And it's just really going to be this really cool thing. I'm really excited about working on it. And still, you know, it, it's still in the nascent stage, though, so I don't really have a 100% idea how I'm going to do it. I've got, like, 50% in my head. That's kind of how I do a lot of things. I, I like to, I take a very natural, organic way to writing things where I write it in my head first and, like, okay, let me see if I can make it work. But that's kind of where we are for the next, almost, I would say, the next year. Um, Miniatures-wise, we have Mutants. Raiders being worked on, and uh, more critters. So yeah, that's kind of where we are for the next year. Nice. So you gotta you gotta spread out in front of you, especially since you're not doing this full time. That's that's quite a no. full plate, and I can respect that. Yeah. I mean, I've got other things on the plate too. So yeah. Nice. Do you care to uh, elaborate on what some of those other things on the plate are, or is it uh, something that we'll have to wait until later? Uh, one is super secret, so I can't talk about that. Um, one of the ideas I'm playing around with is name is pending, but I'm calling it in my head. It's called the Vault Crawler, and it's not like a TNT board game, but it might be where you go through the vaults. You know, you it's like your descent type game, or you know, my inspiration is Warhammer Quest. You know, you go through the real. You know, you pick like some of your you pick. Your guy, your characters, and you go through the dungeon, as it were. But some of the dungeon, it's you know ruins. It's the cloud throne of society, and you're trying to get to a vault, a fallout shelter, and you got to fight your way through critters and bon- and baddies to get to it. And that's kind of it's on the back burner a little bit, but that's something I'm also working on. Oh, and I should also let me before I forget the technology book will have rules for vehicles. People keep asking about it. Vehicles will be in that book. Woohoo! Vehicles. Great. So the the rules yes. will also be in the the book to where I can ram said vehicles into people's faces. Correct. Yes. Um, I will say that vehicle rules. It's not an auto, TNT will never be an auto duel game where vehicles. The challenge to vehicles is you really have to balance it. But it will go. You know, vehicles will play a support role, and like so, you know, you mount your. You, it's really there to help move guys around and to shoot at things. But yes, you will be able to ram. All that will be in there. Now, keeping it nice. part running in the pockets isn't easy or cheap, but it's available to you. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Joe, thanks for coming on, man. Uh, we really appreciate it. We definitely have to do this again. Yeah, that was fun. Awesome. Nick, is there anything else you want to throw in there before we head out? No, I don't have anything uh, other than I'm very excited and waiting for my stuff. Nice. <laughs> Like sitting in front of the mailbox yeah, uh, every day. Yeah, I've got uh, quite a few models over here that I'm going to be using for TNT. So we're definitely going to get something going here locally in the Atlantic area soon. That'll be awesome. Post pictures. Right. I love pictures. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> definitely. All right, guys. Well, hate to cut it short, but unfortunately, I got a long day ahead of me tomorrow. So we will talk to you guys later. Okay, have a good one. It was a pleasure being on here. Thank you for coming. All right, have a good night.